So, <clears throat> do you remember last night uh, we talked about uh, the two selflessnesses or the emptiness of the personal self and the emptiness of phenomena? <clears throat> and uh, not really being separate kinds of emptiness, it's the same emptiness, but just as a sort of pedagogical tool. Remember that? So tonight I want to start talking about personal selflessness, the emptiness of the personal self. <clears throat> and if you've been around these kind of circles for a while, whether it's in Buddhism or other, other traditions too, um, you, you will e- easily have heard some form of the statement like, it's the ego that's the problem, the self is the problem, uh, uh, that's what brings separation, that, that's where the duality is, etc., etc. <clears throat> and so it's very easy to say that. And yet the depth of understanding or fullness of what that means can vary enormously. Enormously. It's actually quite rare uh, to... Um, it's quite rare to, to really actually investigate it deeply and not just take it as a kind of platitude or truism. Oh yeah, it's the self that's the problem, it's the ego that's the problem. Actually really, really go into what that means and, and what's being said there. <clears throat> so in, in Buddha Dharma, in the teachings of the Buddha, uh, it's not so much that we are trying to destroy this self, this personal self, or somehow dissolve it uh, and dissolve it into uh, cosmic consciousness or something like that. It's actually not, uh, although that may feel like that happens meditatively at times in deep meditation, that's actually not the project. The project is we want to understand this self. We want to understand this experience of self. And understand means understand its emptiness. Understand its emptiness. We want to really understand and see the emptiness of the self. Which is different than trying to destroy it or dissolve it. So, (coughs) if we take a step back, actually, and in in a way a step back from this whole retreat (coughs) and the project here, The fundamental question in the Dharma, the fundamental sort of guiding question, is really, as the Buddha would say, what leads to suffering and what leads to freedom from suffering? That's actually the fundamental question. And questions of emptiness uh, and selflessness and all that stuff are kind of uh, part of that question. Why I'm saying that is because as human beings, sometimes, in fact a lot of the time, it's totally appropriate and actually totally helpful to speak and think and choose in terms of self. Okay, not always bashing everything on the head with it's empty, it's empty, it's empty, uh, and thinking in terms of no self. It's actually really, really helpful to see in terms of self and, and feel in terms of self and acknowledge and communicate in terms of self. So, <clears throat> for instance, if, if um, uh, y- you know, I, I, I'm friends with someone and something happens between us and, and we have a disagreement and an argument with uh, Michelle and I say, come on, Michelle, get over it. There's no self. Basically, she's going to want to wallop me. One. <laughs> it's not, in most situations, it's not an appropriate way of dealing with, with two human beings having, having a difficulty. It's not... Uh, uh, it may not be respectful, it may not be caring. So, uh, 
also in terms of some of the choices we make in life, in terms of taking responsibility. It's a self thing. One feels the self taking responsibility. It's completely appropriate. And the Buddha talks a lot in, in those terms, that kind of way of seeing, way of feeling and conceiving. Completely appropriate. Really, really important. And similarly with ethics. It's the self taking responsibility, taking care in relationship to how we are with each other. All self and all, all actually really important. So self and not self are kind of two, <coughs> or can you say avenues, or no, two, two ways of conceiving, two ways of working underneath the umbrella question of what leads to suffering and what does not lead to suffering. And we pick up either the self or the, or the no-self at different times, depending on what's the most helpful, our sense of what's the most appropriate and helpful. So there is much, as I said, in our life where, where the, the language of the self and the conceiving of the self and the feeling of the self and the communicating of the self is actually really important. And working in terms of uh, trying to decrease our suffering in life in, in terms of the self. So, you know, nowadays there's so many different kinds of psychotherapy around and I don't think anyone even knows how many kinds there are probably, let alone understands what all the differences are. But many of them deal and work, and quite, again, quite appropriately, uh, in, in terms of self. In terms of self. And that's, that's uh, healing and appropriate. And I think, you know, what I see, and I've seen it for myself in, uh, in psychotherapy, and, uh, <coughs> and I've seen it in others, is working with the language of self and the conceiving of self, uh, a lot can be learned, an enormous amount can be healed. And think for myself, learning a lot about needs uh, of the self that I was actually unconscious of. I wasn't in touch with what I needed. And so relearning what it is to feel a need, to recognize a need, and to express a need. Need. And the, the, that whole area of communication, this self to that self, and expressing emotions and needs and, and all the rest of it uh, that goes with the self. There was also, and people have obviously, given the range of psychotherapy, very different uh, experiences. But for me, there was something of a kind of reparenting uh, that, that uh, um, I, I felt like I went through. It's sort of discovering how, how to parent myself in a different way. And I felt like that was incredibly healing and incredibly valuable at the time. Um, rediscovering also. Uh, a way of uh, a way of feeling and experiencing and communicating to myself tenderness and kindness. So I, mean, I was perfectly fine in my early twenties operating in the world. But actually, there were lots of problems, and certain things sort of uh, those connections hadn't been made yet properly, or they had been made in not such a healthy way. Learning about the whole realm of of my inner emotional life, which is actually quite a strong emotional life that I didn't really understand. Um, and learning also, and I'm just sharing my experience, to, uh, in a way, to, to cherish myself and to, to rediscover my own beauty. And, and that was, had nothing to do with the ego at all. It wasn't a big puffed up thing. It was something very natural. In a way, a healthy parent, when, uh, when, when it's with a child in a healthy relationship, sees that child as beautiful, unconditionally beautiful in a way. And healthily, we absorb that sense of cherishing ourselves, of celebrating our own uniqueness, our existence, our beauty. And all that's in the realm of self, and to me it's something uh, 
quite lovely uh, in, in, the, in the realm of human experience and healing. With this experience of self, uh, what we notice uh, goes with it is a sense of the story of ourself, the narrative of ourself, my story, my journey, my narrative so far through life, uh, the way that's unfolded. And sometimes uh, you hear people, it's like, it's the story is uh, really, really important. It's like, I, I need to hear your story. Like, I want to hear everyone's story. Beautiful. Sometimes for other people, it's that the story is something completely to be dismissed. It's a very hardcore sort of Buddhist line. It's like, story is irrelevant. The question I have is really, when, or rather, is the relationship that we have with the story at any time helpful or not helpful? Because I can have a relationship with my narrative, my life narrative, my story so far, in a way that ties me up in knots completely uh, imprisons me, uh, that casts me as the victim, that disempowers me, or I can have a story that feels like it's something quite precious and quite uh, beautiful and quite noble. One of the interesting things about the story, following on from this, is it's actually malleable. Our story, the story we tell ourselves and others about our life, is malleable. It's not set in stone. And sometimes we believe, in fact, often we believe that it is. The story we tell ourselves is malleable. Sometimes I like to just wonder, uh, think about the Buddha. If you know, if you know the classical story, um, he could have said, you know, shortly before his enlightenment, grumble, grumble, you know, my, my mum died when I was really young and my dad was really controlling and uh, he wouldn't let me express myself or uh, he really wanted to me to do, you know, be the heir of the kingdom, and I, you know, <laughs> grumble, grumble. Then I found, I finally escaped, and I found this team of five other guys, and we were meditating together, but then they abandoned me because I wanted to do something different, and no one understands me, and <laughs> grumble, grumble. He could have seen himself that way, but obviously he didn't, at least, well, if he did, it's not been recorded in the text, so... Um, Instead, it, it, when he speaks about himself, he speaks about himself as, when he speaks in terms of self, it's as a hero. He's, he's a heroic warrior, a seeker. You know, he's a, he's a champion in the sort of classical Greek sense, almost. And uh, he's, you know, the story is malleable, and he's casting it a certain way. And actually, we can do that, too. So, in a way, we choose our identity to a certain extent. There's much more leeway in this than is immediately obvious. What happens, though, is we get locked in to certain identities. And when we get locked into certain identities, uh, it affects how we then see our life and our experience unfolding. So, uh, yesterday I was sharing about that person who uh, didn't have a job right now, etc. And uh, In a certain mind state of being used to I don't know, succeed in the world in the, in the sort of uh, more conventional sense, which is nothing wrong with at all. Um, it's just, but it's a certain way of identifying. And then according to that identity, something had gone terribly, terribly wrong. But if, if uh, that person recasts their identity as a seeker, and a spiritual seeker, then this gap in job, etc., looks very, very different. It actually has, comes to have a different meaning. The priorities shift. 
And it's not actually that one's uh, inherently better or worse or whatever. It's, it's the, the, the point is more that there's some choice here, and with those choices go certain perceptions and certain senses of how we are doing in the world. So, when we talk about... Um, I had a thing. The identification with the personality level... Uh, is is what I want to part of the talk tonight is what I want to go into, and uh, the the psychological self or what, what we call the personality level of self. In our culture, for different reasons, in our culture, most of the suffering around self is actually tied up at that level. It's interesting. It's around the personality and what do people think of me and what do I think of my personality? Do I like myself? Do I not like myself? Etc. I think that's, uh, I'll touch on this again, I think that's uh, a factor of our culture. Um, and some people don't have this at all, but for many people, this is where a lot of the suffering is tied up with self. And so I want to address it a little bit in this talk. Um, it's not, if you like, the most how, how you say, deepest level of self identification. It's not that. Um, it's more like if. if if the self-sense is like a, a poisonous tree, uh, to borrow the Buddha's analogy, it's a bit like the psychological self is like the branches with flowers on that are giving off some kind of poisonous uh, fumes or something. And so to address identification at that level is, is like chopping the branches or taking the flowers off of this uh, poisonous tree. The roots are actually much, much deeper. But because there's so much suffering at this level, I think it's important to address it, and I'm, I'm going to speak about it. So the question is, or one question is, am I locked in this story that I keep telling myself about myself and my life, and I keep telling others about myself and my life? Have I noticed that that story, if you ask me about my life, mid-40s now, if you ask me about my life, you know, in a way, I could give you a different story, partly depending on the mood. You might have noticed this for yourself. Partly depending on the mood. Partly depending on what feels relevant. So I've done, I feel like just in terms of work, I've done a lot of different things. And depending on what context seems important, you're going to get quite a different story about my life. So right there, the story, again, it's dependent, it's empty. It's not inherently, this is my story. But what happens is we get uh, stuck in beliefs and self-definitions about our personality. Yeah? This, uh, we touched on this a little earlier. Uh, we define ourselves and lock ourselves, bind ourselves with certain definitions about ourselves at a personality level. And this is something we really, really need to investigate. We really need to have a look at what we're doing and how we're doing it in that sense. What are the conclusions we are making about ourselves? What are those definitions? What are the assumptions we are making about ourselves and the images we hold about ourselves? Uh, because they bind us or we bind ourselves with them, again, without really realizing it. And when we do so, when we bind ourselves, the possibilities get drained out of life. Possib the possibilities of our story in its unfoldment in the future, in the, the present and the future, the possibilities of our existence, the creativity, all gets bound, locked in with that, with that uh, binding of the self-definitions. 
And we do this to others as well. Not only am I like this, but you're like that. And we lock someone else this way. And so in in that locking of another, uh, we may fear that other. We may uh, be infatuated with that other, projecting all kinds of things and then being in infatuation with that other. Uh, We may be measuring how often this happens. In the self-other dynamic, measurement comes in. How am I doing in relation to them? My definition of some facet of my personality in relation to that facet, my measurement of that facet in them. In the measurement. And in the measurement, what can brew there? Jealousy, competition, etc. And all of this mutual self, self-definitions uh, affects enormously the, the, the dynamic, the climate, the um, field between, between two people, between self and other. So, what do we do with all this? We want to start puncturing, puncturing some of these beliefs, and puncturing the solidity of it. So one place that's actually quite interesting to start is to just consider, to really consider, how do I tend to define myself? And actually ask that question, how do I define myself? Or rather, what are the ways that I define myself? Because one of the things we realize is not just one way and begin to notice how I define myself. It might even be that I want to start listing all the ways that I define myself. There's something about listing, because then you've got it almost externally. And you can kind of have a look at, look at that. And then, and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then the second thing is, is, that goes with that is, am I really that? These are the definitions, and am I really that? So before the retreat, someone was saying, was in an interview, and someone was saying, we were talking about emptiness of self. And they said, well, if there is no self, then a whole bunch of other stuff, what's the point, and everything's meaningless, and how can there be love, and what am I then, and if there is no self, then blah, 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 blah. Um, Very, very normal uh, reaction to hearing teachings about emptiness. But there's a, there's a different approach too, which, and for a lot of people, is perhaps uh, more helpful, which is rather what I'm talking about now. Is this thing, or this aspect, this characteristic, whatever it is, um, fearfulness or uh, depressiveness or a- anger or whatever it is, is this that I'm identifying with really me or really mine? So is it... turning the question around, asking a different question rather than jumping to the there is no self. Is this that I'm identifying with really me or mine? And secondly, is it suffering to identify, to define and to believe that definition? Can I actually feel the suffering of it? Or just to ask, is it suffering if I bind myself that way? (coughs) And then, how does it feel or how might it feel to let go of that identification? How might it feel, just that bit of identification, how might it feel to let go of that? And might that be possible? So that's approaching it in a much more kind of gradual and gentle and sort of relevant way, realistic way. And then, uh, if it's possible to let go, actually sensing the, the freedom that comes out of it. There's some sense of freedom that goes with letting go of just that definition. You can feel, oh, I can breathe a bit more because I'm, I'm less bound. 
And it's not this big metaphysical jump into kind of imagined non-existence. Who will I be then? Who am I if there's no self? Slowly with that, there comes confidence. Confidence in letting go and com- of definitions of ourself and confidence in emptiness. And that's crucial. Rather than fear, who will I be? It means it's meaningless. There's no love. Da, da, da. Rather than all that, actually we get a sense, this is the right way to go. I feel it. I feel it. So similar with what we were saying last night, a uh, function of mindfulness, function of being on retreat, is to see gaps. And we begin to see gaps in these definitions we have of ourselves. To so say, I am, I, am dep- I am a depressed person. I'm always depressed. I am an angry person. I am a fearful person. After a while, on retreat, um, because of the continuity of mindfulness, you actually see, you know what? There's times when I'm not that. There's times when I'm not fearful, depressed, or angry. This is really important to notice. There are gaps in the self-image. If I was really this, whatever it is, I would have to be that all the time. And clearly, it just takes a little mindfulness, a couple of days, to actually see it's not the case. And again, we join the dots, as I was saying last night, and give a solidity and substance to something it actually does not have. We also notice, just with sustaining mindfulness, that something, for instance, like fearfulness or whatever, it seems like, gosh, 70% of the time I'm fearful. Okay, maybe not all the time, but 70%. But actually when you look closer, it's more like 10% that the mind has somehow uh, felt like it's 70% of the time. And again, with enough mindfulness, begin to look and check out the, the definitions. And you see, at different times, even different times of the same day, I have opposite definitions of myself, contradictory definitions of myself, different definitions. How could they both be real? Which one's real? Which one's true? So it's interesting, this personality level of self is a social animal. In other words, it... um, it's contextual and, and socially contextual, it's relational. The personality of psychology is relational, and it's embedded in a social context. <clears throat> so we find our niche, or this personality self finds its niche socially and in different social environments. And we repeat these definitions of, that we have of ourselves, we repeat them to others, not just to ourselves, we repeat them to others. And, and, and you may find yourself, or notice that you actually do that, or see it in someone else. See in the group, they always say, I am like this, or I am, I am like that. Of course, sometimes it comes out much more subtly. But presenting this personality like this, or like this, and finding that niche, even when it's actually self-demeaning, even when it's painful to have that self-definition, somehow we, we, we want the niche. The niche is comfortable and familiar. And even if I'm, if I'm, the, if I'm the loser... Well, at least I'm. At least everyone knows I'm the loser. At least everyone knows I'm the fail. At least everyone knows I'm the hopeless case. And and uh, sometimes it's done. That's communicated. This self-demeaning, self-depreciatory uh, self-image is communicated in a way that's kind of cute and endearing and funny. And sometimes and and there's still pain in it. And sometimes it's communicated in a way that's just downright painful. something about the familiarity of that 
the self seeks, the personality self seeks at times. Julia and um, and and uh, Tony, we were having a Dharma discussion a while ago uh, with the coordinators, and um, I uh, that's the number of people in the group, and and some people said that their self image, uh, they took their self image from what people said about them. And some people in the group saying, yeah, 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 of course, yeah, definitely. And others uh, couldn't just really. That's so. That's so. That's so interesting. Um, of which I, I was one actually. All this Dharma teaching I've done, and I'd never heard that before. Now, of course, I can see it for a, an infant, but uh, I was quite surprised. So that was quite interesting too. So self puts something out socially, but also takes something socially in terms of its own self-image. Now, all of that, of course, we bring to the cushion. We bring all this to our practice, to our spiritual life, to our meditation. We absolutely bring it. And what happens often, especially when the um, self-sense has uh, some, uh, you know, it's not really healed fully, let's say, is we bring a lot about spiritual practice, meditation practice becomes about improving the self, about... uh, somehow perfecting the self or getting a more perfect self and how easily that creeps in and how common it is and sometimes uh, a person hasn't even realized it so we're going to see very much the same uh, many of the same patterns in meditation that we play out in life it's just a microcosm of something so for instance this morning we're talking about samadhi and some people using the word joy and other people, and then we have the word ease or bliss. But how easily the self makes something of that word in relationship to itself. So if I do have bliss, if I do have an eruption of well-being or a pervasion of well-being, how very easily the self takes it as saying something about itself. Well, look at me. <laughs> Or, if I don't have it, how easily the self says something about itself because it's not there. I'm a, I'm a real, I can't do this, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, etc. And that's actually much more common. Rather than if it's there, enjoying it. You know, It's not about the self, but the self has a way, or rather a habit, the self has a habit of always self-referencing everything. Everything has to do with the self. Everything has to do with me. Me and the measuring of me. Self-referencing, self-reference. It's always the star of the show. Everything revolves around me. So that's a, it's not something to judge. It's, it's something to realize. It's a, a way of seeing the world that goes with the sense of self. To a degree. Now this judging self, this self-judging self, this inner critic, uh, extremely, extremely common in our culture. Probably the, the most common dynamic that I encounter, uh, listening obviously to hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of people, uh, extremely common, uh, so common. And oftentimes when that's there, how it plays out in, in the meditation practice is it's just like we, we cannot engage effort because the engage, engaging of effort and doing in practice just brings up that inner critic, and we 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 just no, it's too it's too it gets too contracted and too painful. 
And so a word like striving, which is actually a word that the Buddha used a lot in, in the text, if you look in the original text, saying strive, 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 actually lands in completely the wrong place and uh, can, cannot even get off the ground. So this, this is a hugely important area and, and really, really interesting. I'm not going to say too much about it. I, I again, to reconnect with something I said before, I, I very much feel it goes with our culture. Uh, and I could be wrong here, but um, around the Renaissance period, around the Enlightenment period, actually, um, the 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 world view, the zeitgeist, kind of changed in Europe, and uh, moving much more to a culture of the individual and a secular culture, and with that, slowly in time, the sense of the individual self and a person's sense of their individual self and their individual story and all that. Um, it, it got raised in human consciousness to, and then even more so in the Romantic era, etc. All of that, of course, had you know beautiful uh, and very beneficial effects, but it came with that too. And sometimes I feel like we're we're dealing with the uh, the painful side of all that, the echo side. We don't see ourselves so much embedded in community or in a uh, more mystical context or religious context, etc. That's a side issue, but uh, it seems like, uh, again, this has its roots in, in social and, and cultural phenomena. So, actually, just another about this inner critic thing. Um, sometimes people say, when they hear teachings about the emptiness of self, sometimes they say, well, surely you need a self before you let go of the self. Surely I need to get... And I feel like I don't have one. Or I feel like, uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 this person need, needs to get their self or something. And usually what they're talking about, usually, is someone with a lot of self-judgment, a lot of inner critic. And it can seem like that's true. Boy, they really don't have much self. They really need to get a self kind of thing. But actually, the inner critic is an extremely uh, dense sense of self. There's an enormous amount of self there. It's just it's all very negative. It's really bound up in a lot of negativity. It's not that there's no self. There's a lot of self, but it's very negative. What we see as human beings, but even more so as meditators with all this, and, and this is really, really quite important, so is actually when we feel into our sense of self is that experientially there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum of self. So what I mean by that is let's take something like uh, the inner critic when it's really firing on all cylinders and it's beating, you know, haranguing you and, and uh, <coughs> uh, 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 aggressing you, etc. Or uh, it's not to do with you. It's something in the world. You're really, you're really um, upset. You're really in a tantrum about something, almost. Those, uh, both of those, inner critic or the tantrum, are examples of a, a really, really, what we could say, uh, it's one end of the spectrum of the self-sense. The self-sense at those times is extremely solid and extremely big and built up. There's a lot of self. Um, when we're very involved with our story or very identified with the story, there's also quite a lot of self there. 
And other times in life, we're not really thinking about the story. Maybe you're in nature, or you're with someone, or you just, whatever it is, or meditating. And the story, the sense of my history and my journey and all that, is just not really there. Progressively less and less self here. And sometimes meditation goes deeper, and it's even less than that, and even less than that, and even less than that. So as human beings, we have actually quite an extraordinary range of the sense of self, the experience of self. Uh, and a very, very subtle level would be just the bare sense of consciousness, just the bare sense of awareness and the objects of awareness. And that's pretty much the most subtle sense of self. There's no story, there's no personality, there's barely anything happening. There's just a sense of awareness, uh, not even really a sense of me. It's just awareness and an object. A very, very subtle sense of self. And all the way at the other end is you've got the inner critic going kind of crazy. So it's a spectrum here. So sometimes uh, uh, people talk about selfing. Selfing, it's uh, it, it coming to the Dharma world. Is, and it's quite a helpful concept. So when am I selfing? Can I notice when I'm selfing? So that's a helpful con- concept. But oftentimes it goes with a kind of more gross manifestation of this spectrum, the grosser end of the spectrum. So when there's some kind of storm about something, when the inner critic is uh, bashing bashing you up, uh, when the ego feels really strong, that's all selfing. And when that's not there, the implication is we're not selfing and therefore things are not a problem. But again, on this retreat, we're, we're actually that's all good and fine at a certain level. But actually, we're saying it gets much, much uh, more subtle than that. And there's a much wider range that we actually really, really want to be interested in. Is this making sense? Yeah. Uh, <coughs> so I remember, um, <coughs> remember when I lived in the States uh, and uh, went along to regularly to the um, the, uh, the the urban center we had there in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and um, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And one time, uh, one of my teachers came, and he was giving a talk about uh, self and not self. And, and I asked a question at the end, and um, it was about this. I said, uh, this years ago, and I said, it seems like there's a spectrum, to, to, to more, similar to what I just said, not quite so refined, probably. But, um, and... Uh, Well, actually, two things. One thing I said: how how do we how do we move uh, to the nicer end of the spectrum, where things are a lot uh, a lot less a lot more light, etc. And he just shot back appreciation, which was up. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Uh, in other words, appreciating the times when there's less self there actually helps the consciousness uh, get more familiar and and ease into that direction more. So appreciation. And then we were having a little bit of a dialogue and. And I said, well, one extreme, you've got uh, kind of, you know, obviously this really built-up self in, in some form or another. And then there was a pillar between us. And I said, in another extreme, you've got just, you know, I see the pillar. There doesn't seem much suffering there. It's just, I see the pillar. So what? And uh, he actually said uh, at, at that time, um, yes, that's right. I see the p- pillar is no problem. But again, for this retreat, we want to be more complete. I see the, pol- I see the pillar, still a level of problem there doesn't feel like suffering is way too strong a word. Way too strong a word. Uh, I don't have any opinions about this pillar. I just, uh, it's not a problem. But there's still something on this spectrum of self that I need to 
uh, penetrate, go deeper than and understand. So even just the appearance of subject and object as somehow inherently existing, that will be a seed of dukkha, a seed of dukkha. And I need to understand all of this. So much more than just ego games. And the self is much, we're not just interested in the side of things that has to do about ego games and kind of puffing up with grandiosity or hyping up the self or denigrating the self or the self-critic or looking good, all of that kind of gross manifestation of self. That's important. But also, as meditators, being interested in when it gets more quiet and the different experiences of self when things get more quiet, more open, more lovely, more refined. So, for example, in loving-kindness practice, in metta practice, um, sometimes a person comes in for an interview and says, the I has gone, the self has gone, I've been doing metta practice, the self has gone, uh, which is great, and then to be encouraged and appreciated. However, if we look more carefully, it's not that it's gone quite yet, it's that it's just more light. The sense of self, the experience of self, is just more light, more refined, more open. It's just that the gross sense of self, the everyday sense of self, certainly the problematic sense of self, but even the everyday sense of self, has, has kind of lightened and evaporated, if you like. And we're left with what first, at first seems like there's no self there. It's actually a more refined, more light, more open sense of self. This is important. And sometimes people ask, in fact, I think even this morning someone was asking, well, if I say in meta practice, may I, this is just a by the by, but say, may I uh, be well, may I be peaceful, may I, may I, may I, won't that be reinforcing the self? And uh, usually not. Usually meta practice leads in the direction of softening the self. It softens the self, even if I'm using that language. So, as meditators, and specifically as meditators interested in, in selflessness and all this, we want to really start watching and getting very, very familiar with this range of self, the range of the experience of self, from the very, very gross to the normal, all the way to the very... getting really, really interested and familiar with that. Uh, in Gelug Tibetan teachings, uh, when they begin teaching about selflessness, uh, personal selflessness, sometimes they say, you have to really get a sense of this. And uh, so you imagine uh, you're in a crowd of people in a, some kind of social situation, and someone suddenly points at you and goes, thief, or something like that. Or, and everyone turns and looks at you. That experience of self in that moment, if you can imagine it, or you know, you're somewhere and not adequately dressed, or, or whatever it is, uh, if you ever had that dream, and um, <laughs> and um, um, when I was really, I remember, well, you don't need to know. <laughs> um, uh, that is actually quite a gross sense of self. It's quite a gross sense of self. But for people, for the more we meditate. And see, I'm aware some of you are very aware of, of this already, this spectrum. The more we meditate, the more familiar we get with the sense of self. Um, I, a little while ago, a friend who'd begun teaching recently uh, was teaching here and did an interview with a yogi. And this yogi was a new yogi, so relatively new teacher, relatively new yogi. And the yogi had experienced, I've forgotten what it was, some, some sense of difficulty and then an opening uh, and a release of the difficulty. And they were talking about it. And then the new teacher friend said, um, and 
and how did that change your sense of self? And the yogi just looked at her and was like, huh? Don't, uh, it often, because that's what we deal with when, when we meditate, we get, we get quite used to noticing how the sense of self feels, but maybe for a lot of people in the world, it's not actually something we pay much attention to. But as meditators, we want to be very, very interested in it. So, whether it's through meditation or whether it's through psychotherapy or different practices or whatever, uh, for instance, I was working with two, two interviews recently, and one person was working a lot with body sense, just really body awareness, body awareness, body awareness, in different ways and quite creative, and came into a couple of interviews with very different senses of what was going on in the body, and at first quite afraid, because it felt like a lot of what he interpreted as anger, turned out actually to be just a sense of power, like vital power, uh, not really ang- anger or directed at anyone. And letting himself feel into that, this different sense of the body that had opened up, actually what came with it was quite a different sense of self. It's almost like the self was growing into an area that he hadn't been familiar with, that he wasn't really calling himself until then. And, uh, in other words, different body perceptions can bring different sense of self as well. Now this happens, as again we were talking this morning, this happens with samadhi. And I talked about, as we go into samadhi, at some point, to some degree or another, the body perception changes. And with that also, the, uh, the sense of self can change. But what also happens when there's samadhi, when there's less thought, it also starts affecting the sense of self. Who am I when I'm not thinking? Who am I when I'm thinking much less? A lot of the sense of self, on a personality level, actually is supported by constant thinking. (coughs) Constant rehashing of of this and that belief about ourselves and the world. And who, who do I become... Who do I feel myself to be when all that starts to go quiet? Who do I feel myself to be when the emotional life starts to go quiet? Again, the emotional life can be quite active a lot of the time. And sometimes in meditation it goes, it just settles into a place of calm or equanimity. There's not a lot happening emotionally. For some people it takes courage to let themselves inhabit that space, that new sense of things. Who am I when I'm neither thinking a lot nor feeling a lot? Who am I when the body begins to dissolve and to blur its boundaries? So what's happening, one of the things that's happening with samadhi is consciously we're beginning to let go of definitions and ways we feel the self. And as I said in the talk on samadhi very briefly, we're actually fabricating the self and the world less and just getting used to that. There's there's a lot there to understand. We're just getting used to not doing that so much getting used to not defining ourselves like that. Is, how's the temperature? It's okay? Okay. If we go into this a bit deeper, there's a range of ways uh, that we can notice that we feel and conceive the sense of self. We actually sense and feel and conceive the sense of self, whether that's consciously, intellectually, philosophically, or just kind of viscerally and primally. So, 
most, well, I don't know, most of the time, the sort of, for most people, perhaps the default way of feeling the self or conceiving of the self, and again, it's not, it's not like we have this as an intellectual idea of the self is this, but we kind of feel like, it seems like, it seems to us as if the self is a kind of controller of the body and the mind and, and the elements of the mind, controller of, of this stuff. And somehow that controller is somehow within this body and mind. Somehow it's within here, somewhere within the body and mind, but somehow it's a bit separate and it's somehow controlling the rest of it. And we don't really think this consciously, it's just the way that a lot of the time we feel the self to be. And so Jeffrey Hopkins is a wonderful uh, teacher in the Tibetan tradition. So it's a bit like a head salesman in a group of other, of more junior salesmen. So it's somehow among all this, it's the same kind of somehow stuff, but it's somehow controlling them. And some, some call that, that's the innate conception of self. It's the kind of default conception, very deeply embedded in our consciousness. That's the way we feel ourselves to be. And that kind of self, feeling it that way, feels like it's what we call technical language, self-sufficient. It seems, it feels, and we're not talking about an intellectual position here, it feels and it seems that the elements which uh, make me up the body and the thinking and the um, yeah, body thinking, uh, intentions, all that stuff, they somehow depend on the person. In other words, first there's me, and then there's this uh, body that I own or that I control. And if you think about this a little bit further and just play with it, it's like, how, how many people would be happy as they get older to swap their body for a younger one? <laughs> or at least large parts of it. Uh, and similarly the mind. Swap the mind for one that's fresher or more you know, able, better in some way. So what's going on there? We somehow feel that this... This uh, somehow in here somewhere, and yet we'd happily uh, swap bits of it. Uh, some, sometimes it seems like the self, the sense of the self, is actually the collection of all this body and mind and consciousness, etc. Sometimes, in, in different ways, it can seem completely independent of it, like all this is here and the self is somehow other. Um, the, there's a sutta of the Buddhas, and I can't remember where it is, I apologize, but um, he actually goes through four possibilities of ways of conceiving the self. He says, you could conceive uh, of the self as, as the body, the mind, and consciousness. Body, mental factors, and consciousness. And you'd say, the self is that. You could say, or feel, or conceive, the self possesses all that. I own all this. The self is something that possesses uh, body, mind, consciousness, etc. You could say or conceive or postulate the self is in, somewhere in the body, mind, consciousness. Um, or you could say, perhaps more mystically, the body, mind, consciousness is in the self somehow, and then usually the self has a capital S. Uh, in God or capital S self or awareness or something and it feels like this is in that and that can be a very meditative experience too how's your energy guys? you okay? Yeah. Um, the 
conceivings of the self can get much more even sophisticated and subtle than that. So, and, and these are quite Buddhist ones now. Sometimes you hear a, a teacher say, the self is the continuum of the, uh, what's called the aggregates, we'll go into this again, the elements that make up us. It's the continuum of moments of consciousness and feeling and perception and thought and, and etc. It's the continuum of that. Or the self, and you hear this in different spiritual traditions, the self is awareness. You are the witness. You are the witness. You are awareness. That's your true identity. Or, sometimes again, the self is, it's the result of an infinite web of conditions. And there's the self. This infinite web of conditions. Or, um, uh, there's some kind of, uh, well, similar to what I said before, actually, a kind of oneness, a cosmic self. That's the real self, is a cosmic self. So, actually, when the Buddha listed all these, that actually none of them are true. And to hold or grasp, either intellectually or in a more primal way, to any of them, will be dukkha, will be a mistake. They all, all those examples I gave, they all somehow hiding within them, implicit is the sense of the inherent existence of self in some form or another. And so is a problem. It's a problem and problems will come out of it. So remember, as I said at the beginning, it's not that we're trying to get rid of the sense of I, the sense of me. Only the identification and belief of the self, of the I, as uh, self-existent, as established from its own side. So it's something dependent, we say. The self is a dependent arising. So thinking, for example, you cannot. there cannot be thinking without a thinker, really. There cannot be thinking without a thinker, but that doesn't imply that the I that thinks is a permanent or independently existing self. The teaching is very, very subtle here. So again, conventionally, it exists and functions. So you look at me. I, Rob, am am obviously here within this area of body, and I eat, and I go to the toilet, and I sleep, and I'm talking. But actually, when you look for me, I'm unfindable. And when I look for you, you're not findable. And we're going to go into this unfindability later in, in a lot of detail. So... These are the sort of default ways uh, we tend to see the self. And the question is, or a question is, is it possible to practice seeing in different ways? Is it possible to practice seeing and feeling the self in different ways, different ways of looking at the self? So, as I said earlier, usually the self casts itself as the star of the show. Usually, not not all the time, but usually, and it's the uh, it takes center stage. Everything depends on me, and we don't see that uh, the results of our actions and what happens in life or what happens in a certain situation is actually the result of a whole web of conditions. It's what we call a dependent arising dependent on a whole web of conditions. Sometimes I like to, you know, it's like to say, actually, for instance, this Dharma talk. So this Dharma talk, to me, feels quite different from last night's Dharma talk. The energy in the room is very different. And 
it's interesting to say, well, why is that? And maybe tomorrow night it's different. Why? Because it's a dependent arising. Sometimes, you know, I could feel like, oh, maybe, I don't know, it didn't go that well, or they were a bit sleepy, or this and that. But actually, it's uh, what comes even out of my mouth, the energy with which I express it, the, it it's all, in a, in a way, you guys are giving the talk, as much as I am. Do you, does anyone, if you've ever done any public performing, like if you're a musician or something like that, can you, you can feel the interaction with, and even when you're talking one-on-one with someone, you're sharing something, and it's deep, and it's... Uh, uh, perhaps vulnerable or whatever, how, how what comes out of your mouth depends on the quality with which you are being listened to. Have you noticed this? Same, same thing. What happens, though, so often to, to this delu- deluded consciousness is we take the result, maybe it doesn't, maybe I say something uh, wrong or it's not very clear or intelligent or w- whatever it is. Uh, in this situation, it could be any situation. And then I take that as reflecting on the self. The result it was was it, it's about me rather than it was a dependent arising. So many factors there. So you could be uh, could be that in in a work situation in an office or whatever, and you make a mistake and actually didn't see. Well, there was tiredness there. I was tired. It's, it's a condition that doesn't have to do with self. And there was lots of stuff going on in the office, lots of distraction, lots of pressure. All this it's a dependent arising rather than self. Now, I say that, and uh, hopefully it makes sense, but the thing, again, as always, is to see it as a practice. To see it as a practice. So we find ourselves in pain with how things went, and judging the self for it. And Can we review the situation and actually look at it in terms of the web of conditions rather than the self? And actually look at it again. And sometimes we need a friend to help us do it. So what am I? What am I not seeing of the of the web of conditionality, the web of conditions, the dependent arising? So, all, all of this, uh, I really feel. You know, when, when I give a dumb talk, I'm, I'm talking about practice ra- rather than anything else. Everything, everything that's said, it's like it takes practice to really digest it. it takes uh, looking in certain ways to uh, deliberately to really digest it. So we said. The self is dependent. It's a dependent arising. So, second possibility. Have you noticed, like I said before, that the sense of the self changes and gets stronger, gets less, gets more solid, gets less solid? And it changes with clinging. When the sense of self is really strong and solid, something is also being... uh, clung to as really solid. Something is a big deal. If I'm in a tantrum about something, if I'm even in a critic, I'm judging something. So when, when the self is, for the self to be strong, it actually takes clinging to something as a big deal. Do, do you understand? The more I cling to something as a big deal, actually, the stronger the self. So, or for instance, I, I, how much the self gets built up by thinking about I think about this. Something has become... I think about this thing because it's a big deal. And with that thinking about and thinking about, the self-sense gets built up. It's dependent on the clinging and the thinking about. And that thing I think about could be meditation. could be meditation progress, if you're here, and that's the sort of thing. And then the self-view is built around that. So, for instance, 
on retreat, there's not a lot of other stuff to think about except meditation. There's not much else. And so meditation begins to become quite a big deal in how I'm doing in my meditation. And the self-view arises in relationship to meditation, how I'm doing in meditation. So, as I was saying last night, it's like out of everything that's going on in the day, uh, going to the toilet, sleeping, da 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 pick out one thing and focus on that, draw it out of the totality, focus on it and build the self-view from that thing that I'm pulling out and in relationship to that thing. And then I've built a self-view and that self-view is then like putting on a pair of really strong uh, sunglasses, like lenses that, sunglasses in the right word, uh, lenses that focus then on, on particular things. So, for instance, if we take meditation, um, I'm here, meditation gets to mean something, it gets to be the big deal after a while on retreat. So the self-sense relates to that and draws that out of the totality of experience. It could be something much smaller, because actually doing quite a lot of meditation. It could be something, um, I can't think of anything right now, but something much, it doesn't have to be that common in the day. In other words, it could be just a moment or two, but somehow we're drawing something out of the totality, and then the self-view gets built in relationship to that thing, and then that self-view is the way we then look again at the totality, and so the cycle goes round. We keep drawing out that thing. So, for example, meditation. Meditation gets to mean something. I start building the self-view around meditation. It's not going very well. I must be a failure. I must be not good enough. I must be a loser. And then we look at the meditation experience through that lens, and we focus on when it's not going so well. It becomes, And so it goes round. Do you understand? It's like a filter. It's a filter, very good. Yeah, it's a filter of perception. And, uh, and, and the process builds itself this way. It build, the self-sense gets built this way. Again, sometimes very, very gross, sometimes quite subtle. The point is, what we begin to see with practice is, because we practice letting go of clinging, and then seeing the self-sense, uh, we'll get much more into this, get less. So we begin to cotton on. The self-sense isn't really independently real. It moves along this spectrum dependent on my clinging. So the self-sense is a dependent arising. Depends on something being a big deal and clinging. Can I ask a very quick question? Is, am I right in thinking that the more you, tend, you begin to lose the self in meditation, when you're not in meditation, you're clinging to self? can get even bigger and really problematic to begin with? Um, it can, yes, it can. Um, a little bit relates to the question this morning, Aiko, about, about not making too much of a duality between meditation, non-meditation, thinking and non-thinking. Yeah, so it can, definitely. In the long run, it really shouldn't. Um, but it, it might go through that little hump, and then we need to address that. And like I was saying, I don't know if it was in the opening talk, it's not enough. So it's very good to see and experience times when the self gets less in meditation and much more light and refined, etc. But that on its own will not do the trick. And I'm saying, I can't remember which talk it was, but we need to actively look at the self and expose it for what it is, which is different than just letting it go quiet and hanging out when it's quiet. It's like... Um, It's like this poisonous tree, you know, maybe the flowers don't come out in, in, uh, in winter, 
but lo and behold, spring comes, the flowers come out, and it, it puts out its poison. We need to actually cut the tree. Yeah. Although it's it's still really useful. Yeah. Um, one one of the for me really interesting things about one of the sort of radical sort of strokes of genius of the Buddha, if I look back at the, the early text, is <clears throat> he shifted the perspective on things. And it's kind of, you'd, I didn't realize it until uh, someone pointed it out, but it's a lot of practice. It's not actually obvious. The perspective, um, usually of a human being, is in terms of self and self-view. And actually, even at that time in India, uh, a lot of the perspective was about searching for a self, or what is this, etc., and the Buddha actually shifted the perspective to what leads to suffering, what actions lead to suffering, and what actions lead to freedom from suffering. So the shift was from self to actions. When I say that, I mean, I like, so? But actually, there, there's quite a radical stroke of genius there. Uh, and again, this is something that needs practice to, to uh, empower this shift within ourselves. Something that's quite interesting is, uh, for instance, the difference between, I don't know if these are the right English words, guilt and remorse. I'm not sure if that's dictionary correct, but um, we've done something in the past, or we neglected to do something, maybe it's years ago, and the mind can get trapped in guilt. We just rehash that scenario, and it goes round and round and round, replaying of something. And in that replaying, it's all about self, conclusions about self, and how we messed up, and this and that. Self and a repetition of the past, because we're looking at it in terms of self-view, versus actually looking at it in terms of actions that are helpful or not helpful. And that it's taking the self-view out of it, Again, this is a practice. And so if it's in terms of action, saying, oh, that action wasn't helpful, it led to my and other suffering, whatever it was, or, or non-action. And if I look at it that way, then it takes the self out of it, and it also can look forward into the future. It can look forward uh, in a creative way, rather than just get s- looping around in self and the past. Do, do you understand? Isn't it a bunch? It's a manifestation of Papancha, sure, but I'm talking specifically, uh, well, let's see, that, um, yeah, in a way the Buddha saying, let's just talk about actions and not self, was a way of, of cutting Papancha. Yeah. Do we want to open the door a little bit? Is it a little stuffy in here? Or is it, is it just me? Or, you guys okay? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, sometimes, you might want to try, again, t- just talking about practice. Uh, so, by the way, actually, this guilt, remorse, this action versus self point of view, we do it with others, too. Have you noticed how we do it with others? They do something, or they forget to do something, and we make a conclusion about themselves, and then we trap them in that, as I was saying earlier, versus oh, that action, that choice, that, that thing that they did or didn't do, wasn't it, that, that was, is the issue, wasn't that helpful, rather than the conclusion about the person, the self-view. Another little thing that's possible to try is, um, and you'd be surprised, you may be surprised, sometimes you're sitting just quietly, maybe in meditation, maybe not in meditation, 
and just drop the self-definitions. Just drop the self-definitions. Just... Can you even do that now, just for a moment or two? You taste that? Can you get a glimpse of it? No? Yes? Yes, a bit. Yeah? It's, inter- it's, a, it's a bit more available than we might think. It's actually, you, get, you, get, you can kind of just get used to just... Oftentimes these definitions of ourselves are actually... Sometimes they're very conscious. You, you really hear, I am this, and we're really suffering with that. Other times the definitions are operating just subliminally. And sometimes just kind of going to a, a mode of just drop the, def- the definitions actually just gets... Uh, those more subliminal ones just go a little quiet, and then you're left with, ah... Especially if we feel a little, a little dukkha around, a little unhappiness, it can be really interesting to play with that. Tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning, in fact, I'm going to introduce another way of looking, and in fact, uh, introduce some insight practices. And one of them is what we call anatta practice, and I'll talk much more about that. But this is still in the realm of learning to see in other ways, and ways that bring, ways that bring freedom, ways other than the habitual way of seeing and conceiving of the self. Actually learning to look and uh, you know, learning to look at experience and the self differently. But I'll, I'll leave that till then. So uh, this morning Nick asked a question and, and uh, it was a very deep and uh, very complex question but I, I feel like I could have done much better in terms of the answer. So, um, and it's related to this. And the self is empty, yet it's still there in a sense, and it still functions. And there's something about that. And things are empty, and yet they still function. Well, later on in the retreat, as it's a saying, and this is partly where it gets complex. If we really focus deeply at any time, at, at the time that we're really focusing deeply on the sense of emptiness of self or emptiness of something, um, that thing begins to fade, uh, certainly to lose its solidity and substantiality and then to fade. We'll revisit this in in a lot of detail. But um, when I'm not focusing on on the emptiness of something so deeply, it's like, but I've seen the emptiness of things deeply. Things can appear uh, and we just know that they're empty. We just know that. And they appear, a uh, classical way of saying it, is they appear, appear like an illusion. And this world and the world of self and things that we take, so re- it begins to take on, uh, in, in a very lovely way, a kind of illusory, magical, magical is a better quality, a magical-like quality. That's a much better word than illusory. It's a magical-like quality. Are you talking about in... in Meditation or Both, but if you go really deep, deliberately contemplating the emptiness of something, that uh, self or whatever will actually disappear from con- it will fade from consciousness. We we will talk about this. Afterwards, uh, it's almost like the knowledge of the emptiness of things. Um, it's like bec- even when you're not contemplating deliberately, the things still appear and they do their thing and they interact and they function. But one has the the knowledge, the understanding of the emptiness, so to speak, in the background. And, and it takes on a kind of magical quality. It's like, one, one knows, this is just the appearance of things. This is just the appearance of things. And it's not, uh, it's not one's 
not so fully assenting to that solidity of, of self or honor. And in that, uh, things appear, but there's uh, drastically less suffering. There's, there's more openness there. So, that's all I'm going to do for now. <laughs> I hope that's okay. Um, Nagarjuna says, uh, in terms of this, relying on actions and effects within knowing this emptiness of phenomena. So, things function, causes and effects function. Within knowing the emptiness of phenomena, he says, is even more amazing than the amazing and even more marvelous than the marvelous. That there's something truly, truly magical about this. So things appear, everything works, but, but one's seen the, the magical spell of it. it. I'm aware, you know, yesterday talking about inherent, what does it mean for things to lack inherent existence? And it's actually quite a journey to fully understand what that means. But we begin to, it, we begin to get more and more clear. It begins to get more and more clear. I'm repeating something I said just to finish that I've already said in this talk, but a big part, I think, very generally, of, of how I conceive of meditation, the whole meditative project, is learning different ways of looking. Learning different ways of looking at things and learning ways of looking that unbind the suffering of things for us. And so to go back to what I've begun with, uh, we can look in terms of self, and we can look in terms of no-self. And both are useful at different times. Both are useful, and we're learning ways of looking. A non-practitioner, it's probably fair to say, uh, or most human beings, will only be used to looking in terms of self. It's the default, as I said, it's the, it's the habitual, ingrained habitual way of looking. And what we're doing as practitioners is actually expanding our possibilities are a range of ways of looking. So I can look in terms of self, but I can also look in terms of not-self, and I can choose when I do when I do one and when I do in a way even to the degree to which I do one or the other. And in that, it opens up an uh, enormously vast range of, of possibilities for freedom and possibilities for understanding truth as well. I'm tempted to ask this I mean... Maybe I'm clinging to some uh, you know, Zen, you know, sort of Zen idea of the true self. Mm -hmm. And for me, there are, there are moments when um, I don't know opinions perhaps fall away. Mm -hmm. And then it feels like you're you're being the seeing, you're being the knowing mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. now at that point, I, I guess I don't think of it as, as a way of looking. I, yeah. Maybe that's is that am I deluding myself in that? Um, in a subtle way, yes. But this is really important. So this exactly has to do with what I was talking about. This spectrum. So at that point, the grosser manifestations of self, personality, self, opinion, self, all that, all that sort of grosser kind of shackles has fallen away, and what has happened is the identification has gone in a very subtle way with with the looking. With the, with the consciousness, with the seeing. And once, as you said, being the seeing. Sometimes you hear that that's it, that's what we're trying to do, that's the arrival point. I would um, most definitely say not. Uh, that that's a, that's a very lovely uh, stage on, on, the, on, the, um, on the spectrum of, of much less self. But there's still, what would it be to even let go of that? What would that be? 
and uh, to go beyond an identification, even that, even identification with being or simple being or being the looking or being awareness or whatever. So it's and that that's quite a journey, but that's what we want to kind of communicate and give give some sense of how one might actually even begin to go beyond that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll say because. I think perhaps I, I thought, oh, you can take all my nice experiences away, but it doesn't no, feel like that. No, no, it no. feels like no. that actually might, there might be just more space, yes, yes. room so, or space or something like that. You yes, know what I mean? absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, for one, would never want to take your nice experiences away. <laughs> some, some teachers d- d- do, but I, I want you to have all the nice experiences that you, and, and, and I want you to have more. And ultimately, it's not about experiences, it's about the understanding. But some, a lot of, uh, not all the time, but sometimes the experiences help the understanding. Um, so yes, you're quite right. It's like d- keep it, go for it, get get really used to that, get familiar with that. As one of my teachers used to say to me, he said, "Get attached, Rob," and I was like, <laughs> "Really?" Um, so you want to get really used to that, and then in time, it's almost like uh, hopefully, hopefully we don't set up house there. Hopefully something in us has a bit more integrity, and we're saying, well, "Maybe there's something more than this. Maybe I can even let go of this." And what would that be? So you y- you still keep access to that that stage uh, and that much less self but it can even go beyond that yeah. so we, we'll get to all this uh, in, in the weeks yeah definitely yeah but, but that was helpful though. Yeah. good good mm. yeah. yeah is it like taking medicine taking a drug or taking something and your body gets used to it and then it's no longer as effective you have to take another you have to take a, a, a bigger dose or a different hmm. I'm, I'm using the wrong language you know What's the word? Um, what's that? No, I wouldn't quite put it like that, to be honest. Um, it's, it's more like um, when, when consciousness opens to a new, a new and unfamiliar state of less self, to whatever degree, it's usually quite striking and quite um, wow. And the initial reaction we have is this: this is, must be it, kind of thing. Uh, a lot of people say this: this, this is. I can't conceive of going further than this. And, and uh, it's just that it's a bit like um, sometimes I say to people: it's a bit like going into a darkened room. And at first you say, "There's nothing here. There's no self here. There's nothing here." And then a little while, your eyes get used to it, and you say, "Oh, actually, there's. Oh, actually." Oh, look, there's a bunch of people. <laughs> and, uh, or whatever it is. Um, it's, stu- it's like we don't notice the subtle dukkha in a state like that. You're talking really subtle now, and the subtle sense of identification. And it takes a while to actually get used to it. So people teach in very different ways. I tend to say uh, to people, say, get attached, get, get familiar with that place, and really enjoy it, and... and uh, Drink the freedom of it. Let it um, impress on the being and, and seep into the being. And then after a while, time to move on. Time to look now. What's still the identification here? What's still, what's still t- t- you know? Uh, so you, you kind of get, I mean, my way of thinking is you get the best of both worlds that way. Um, does that make sense, if I put it that way? Yeah, that seems very elusive. What, what seems elusive? I mean... Just to be able to get to that point. Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, and then to say, well, that's not good enough. Okay. <laughs> so, 
Can you can you tell what's come in at this point? Can you tell what's come in? It's the measuring self, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, like I said, this is going to creep into practice. We're going to bring this to practice. There's, you know, we might as well talk about this a little bit. I, I will give a whole talk about re- relating to practice. Why is relating to practice at some point? But um, it's coming up now, so I'll, I'll talk about it. Um, you know, sometimes teachers make a decision not to say anything about this kind of stuff and just kind of maybe just kind of ignore a little bit Bruce and his question or, or whatever, uh, so that people don't feel the pain of that, well, not good enough, not good enough. Um, the danger is that then certain stuff doesn't get talked about. It doesn't get communicated. Um, if we're going to communicate it, then the danger is that that pain comes up and the pain of me- the measuring self and the inner critic and all that. And so it's really, really important to find uh, a really healthy, balanced relationship with, with all this. Um, on this retreat, I'm going to be, by the end of it, I will I pretty much say this, by the end of it, I will be describing experiences and stuff that I know no one has, has even come near yet. But I'm just painting a picture of something. It's very important how I relate to that. It's very important. Um, I can relate to it with a sense of inspiration, I can relate to it with a sense of self-judgment, etc. But this also needs to be investigated. Um, what matters is that you have a sense of possibility. So wherever I am now, I have a sense of, you know what, I can do that, because I just do this and this, and eventually it's going to unfold that way, rather than a sense of impossibility. And um, partly I hope that what we will try and communicate is a really clear kind of way of proceeding. So it's kind of just a matter of doing this and doing that, and, and the thing begins to unfold. And with that, and with the practice, and you probably notice over the four weeks, a sense of possibility begins to emerge, rather than a sense of, how would, how would I possibly do that? And it is really, really important. Really important. So, um, you know, and people in here have very different backgrounds, very different um, histories with meditation, etc., Partly, what what we're saying is that anything you anything you've, you've chosen to define yourself, you're setting yourself up for a massive failure. You know, if you, if you, if you uh, I work partly with adolescents. Lots of them have to have perfectly spotless white trainers. Hmm. They get some mud on it. Um, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. Yes. But but that's just a crude version of what we're all doing. Isn't yes. It, really? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, I want to just say a bit more about this. I'm not sure what to say right now. Um, you know what, what I was saying uh, earlier today about samadhi. It's like the mind has a tendency sometimes to get embroiled in what it doesn't have, and uh, or what the problem is, and rather than actually. L- Feeling, uh, feeling one's um, feeling what's working for oneself, and actually enjoying that sense of possibility for oneself, rather than what I don't have yet and what that must mean about me. So again, there's a kind of br- bringing oneself back to oneself and one's own experience, and actually, I can feel this unfolding, or I feel that just this little bit of release, and I've understood something there, and that's actually uh, really, really important. Why do you keep using the word self. 
just bring oneself, uh -huh. myself. Yes. But if I don't have a self. Okay, but didn't I also say tonight that we we have uh, th th there's the possibility of looking in terms of self and looking not in terms of self. So, a really really important is for me to love myself. Me to love myself. I have a relationship with myself of care and and me. And I care about myself, and I care about my meditation practice, and it's completely uh, on that level. And really important, you know, really important. Does that make sense, Sam? Yeah. yeah. So we, I will revisit, as I said, a whole talk just about this, um, but it's really, really crucial, especially in a retreat like this, when I'm, we'll be talking about a lot of blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.